to the Enthusiast Club podcast. I'm R.J. White. Each time you'll hear from a member of the club about a topic that gets them excited. Film, food, TV, music, society, arts, big or small, specific or general, you name it, someone is excited about it. So, have you ever watched a TV show, a movie, or even an ad? You hear that uh, background music and think, huh, this seems familiar. I think I've heard this before. Well, that's not just you. You probably have. It's probably a piece of music that's been used dozens of times. Well, what is it? Who makes it? You're in luck. Today we have Nate Patron of our St. Paul chapter. Yes, someone outside of Philadelphia or Brooklyn. Imagine that. To tell us all about the world of library music. exactly is library music it's basically it's production or stock music which is typically it's composed by i wouldn't say anonymous per se but they're often semi-anonymous often pseudonymous songwriters and performed by work for hire session players uh, and they're released by labels generally in a non-commercial sense you can't just walk into a or couldn't just walk into a tower records and pick one up uh, they're generally released by labels to you know, media outlets and such, uh, and they were dedicated to providing relatively low-cost music to be used for TV shows, commercials, you know, low-budget films, you know, and so forth. And, and how how did you first kind of become aware of this stuff? Because I think I have an idea of when I I'm when I did, but I'm, I'm wondering when you did. Yeah, it's it seems to kind of coincide with the sort of late '90s. Uh, minor scale craze for like it kind of like piggybacked or drafted behind the uh, the whole lounge and exotica revival. I definitely remember at least three different compilations from successive years that got me into it. Uh, there was uh, this label 18th Street Lounge Music put out this compilation called Easy Tempo in 1999, and uh, that was like curated by that you know trip hop adjacent down tempo group Thievery Corporation. You remember them? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They they put together uh, the the this, the track list, and it was mostly, I think, or either mostly or entirely just Italian library music that fit a sort of jet set jazz funk meets lounge kitsch turn of the seventies sort of James Bond knockoff suaveness that I thought was kind of fascinating. It's like, oh yeah, this is this is music you you drive an Alfa Romeo to, and uh, then in two thousand, a year later. Uh, this other label that was also kind of in the uh, quasi-kitsch business, Emperor Norton. Yeah, they dropped this comp called Cinemaphonic Electro Soul. Uh, they gravitated a bit more towards America, although not completely, but it had a bit more disco and funk vibe to it. Uh, now, of course, it had a photo of a naked woman from the 70s on the cover because that's just how things were with these labels. But uh, like this comp included some songs, like some kind of unusual kind of intersections with pop music history because Paul Simon had a brother named Edward who recorded some library music for this label. I think it was like called Major Productions. One of the uh, tracks that was included on this compilation was uh, called uh, Harvey Wallbanger, which is this kind of wigged out kind of instrumental keyboard funk. And Edward Simon put out this... 12 inch on major records that was like five or six tracks that was just this most wigged out Hammond B3 music that was just like kind of like somewhere between 
uh, hippie freak out psychedelia and kind of up-tempo organ funk. Yeah, it's it's been kind of a holy grail of mine as far as like wanting an album to actually own. There were also a couple of other tracks by Walter Murphy uh, that he recorded before a fifth of Beethoven made him famous, including this one that was just called Dancing, you know, that which is a total ri- it's a just, it's it's a total ripoff of Herbie Mann's Hijack except without a flute. Well, actually that that seems it's kind of interesting to me is that because I, when I was first became aware of this, I think it was uh, a couple of uh, Nickelodeon shows in the 90s where Ren and Stimpy and Pete and Pete, you'd hear this music you'd heard other places, other times before. And that's why I kind of started looking into it, like thinking like, oh, okay. So they just have this stuff they can use completely divorced from the original work, divorced from any single uh, one film or TV show or story. And you just drop it in where you feel like it'll fit somehow. Yeah, and that's the funny thing is like in the context of TV shows, and we can talk about uh, a bit more about this. I could get a little heavier into this. A lot of these, you know, theme songs, famous theme songs, come from uh, library music or production music companies, and some of them pull double duty. I think a lot of the most famous pieces of library music they're best known for. Yeah, they, yeah, they're best known for their usage in like really iconic films and TV shows. Like one of my favorite examples, although it's a bit more recent, is uh, the Eric Andre show. When you when they do those, we'll be right back bumpers, those little stingers. That comes from this you know brief library track, Oregon Spirit, uh, written in 1995 by a guy named Rolf Kruger. Like maybe the most famous kind of early example that a lot of people cut on to, but maybe didn't realize was library music was the uh, score to. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the the stuff that like Neil Innes. What? Yeah, it is the stuff that Neil Innes didn't write. You know, the original, you know, songs like Knights of the Round Table and all that other stuff. The bombastic orchestral stuff, the really straight faced, you know, really epic shit. That's that's uh, from a number of different albums put out by uh, the DeWolf Music Library from the around the turn of the 70s. And also a lot of these library music firms, you know, well, well, the vast majority of them uh, are out of the UK and Europe. So you have the irony of some of these iconic themes for, you know, all American sports being inadvertently provided by Brits. Like the Monday Night Football theme is a 1974 track called Heavy Action uh, written by a guy named Johnny Pearson, who is, you know, born in, you know, Bromley, the borough of London. Wait, and that that was that's that's what that's from? Yeah. Oh, my God. And, you know, the big pastoral orchestral ending theme from This Week in Baseball. Yeah. You know, the one that gave so many, you know, kids of the 70s and 80s, uh, like their, like, you know, soundtrack to Reggie Jackson and Nolan Ryan and all that. Right. Dress after the twib notes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Composed by John Scott, who was born in Bristol. He was he was the guy who played the flute on the Beatles. You've got to hide your love away. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, there are so many, so many, so many weird connections between library music and and pop music and pop culture, because a lot of these guys are just session players who were on albums like and like extremely well-known songs. And it could go on about a lot of these musicians who are a lot more obscure than they should be. Well, actually, I was wondering about that because like you said, it's it's session musicians and composers who like what this was just kind of like a day job grinding these out. They weren't for specific projects. They were just for the purpose of making this. I don't want to say generic music, but this music that you put that out there 
and it's for the entirely for the purpose of somebody deciding, well, I guess I could use this in my thing, but it wasn't written for that thing. Yeah, it's like a modular music, a modular soundtrack. Well, so they were, were they doing it just to try to capture uh, a mood or capture, I hate, I hate to say rip off, but uh, it'd be imitative of um, another popular type of music be, without having to pay the dough to hire those musicians to actually do that music. I mean, what was the purpose behind a lot of this? Well, some of it was kind of sound-alike stuff. Uh, I have, you know, this this one album in my digital collection that has like, okay, here's a song that sounds like Slade. Here's a song that sounds like the who here's a song that sounds like Gary glitter, which, you know, maybe, uh, maybe the, you know, maybe the Joker movie should have used instead of, you know, uh, you know, the actual rock and roll part two. So they wouldn't have to worry about any money going to that creep. Yeah. In other cases, I mean, you, you have stuff that kind of just, tries to capture a certain vibe without distinctly sounding like anybody specific. And so you get kind of these songs and compositions that really do sort of sound almost like a, at a right angle or, you know, an, an alternate universe version of rock. That's not quite outsidery enough, but it's the kind of stab at rock that comes from, you know, like lifers who have to write and compose songs for every imaginable genre and kind of get things tangled up a little or just have an excuse to experiment and try to find new ideas. Well, and that's always kind of fascinating to me, too, the whole idea of the uh, session musician. I just, um, I mean, you know, the Wrecking Crew, of course, and I just uh, watched that um, Ken Burns country music documentary. And that came up, too, where just there was like a core group of people who just played on countless, countless, countless hits but they were just the people in the background and they would just do like style for style playing 20 different songs in a day pretty much just hop on to the next one which might be a completely different style from the thing they played like uh, 10 minutes ago something like that because it's just it's just kind of work to them yeah well yeah that's what happens when you have you know players who are basically so experienced that they can do everything in like a, you know the bare minimum of takes and do a you know, yeah like a wide variety of styles and I think in some cases, like when you talk about library music, some of the more well-known artists are the ones who are best known for being like wild experimentation, uh, you know, people like, you know, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and Delia Derbyshire, you know, people who did all these early experiments with synthesizers and wound up doing music for, you know, stuff like Doctor Who or artists who are not quite library music, but had the kind of the similar career paths, like Suzanne Ciani, who is, you know, uh, you know, crashed on, uh, the floor of Philip Glass's studio and wound up doing, you know, jingles and identities for Coca-Cola and Atari and such, and then did their own new age albums. So it's sort of a field of under-recognized experimental genius. But then on the other hand, you do have like the, you know, Wrecking Crew slash Funk Brothers style sense of the largely anonymous session players, many of whom are, you know, still not credited on these albums. I mean, the thing about some of these labels, like like KPM in particular is this label out of the UK that had zero interest whatsoever in being, you know, in-depth and fancy with the liner notes. Every, like almost every single album they released had the exact same olive green cover 
with a white border and just the KPM logo in the upper right-hand corner. And then you had to like look at the back to see, okay, well, what's this album called and what songs are on it? And the you know, and then next to each song would be like a description of the mood or you know the the, the style of it. You know, you'd have a composer name, and that's generally usually about it. So that seems like it's almost taking it down to a, just a really uh, basic economic. A generic form where it's like we know what you're using this for oh let's see you got a you got a scene that's supposed to be sad here uh this one's full of sad music pick one mm-hmm. exactly that's exactly it. and the funny thing is like most of the like most of the library musicians who are known are the ones who got writing credits and so you'd have their names on the back but some of these musicians were kind of one degree removed from pop stars in their own right. I think my favorite example out of all the library music musicians is Alan Hawkshaw. Uh, he played keyboard with a few groups. He did a John Peel session in 1968 with a pre-space oddity David Bowie. What? Yeah. And then he had like a minor cult hit in 1968. Uh, the Mohawks, the champ, as uh, his him and a bunch of other session musicians and that song has been sampled, I'm only slightly exaggerating when I say it's been sampled a billion times, because it might be the most famous Hammond B3 organ riff there is. It's like, champ, you know, it's sort of like a goof on the um, Lowell Folsom song, The Tramp, but it's, so it is kind of a sound alike, but it became super well-known in its own right by the early days of hip-hop in the mid-70s. It was he was finding its way into, like, DJ crates. And then, I think it was probably unintentional, though who knows, you might have had some, you know, real ASCAP, you know, uh, name-searcher types in the, uh, in the biz. But in 1979, Alan Hawkshaw put together this disco cash in studio group called Love Deluxe, had a... Uh, Number one dance single with Here Comes That Sound Again, which was number one for a week on the uh, Billboard dance charts. And then the intro for that song was interpolated and replayed as the intro to the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's the bit at the beginning that doesn't come from Sheik's Good Times. It's that do 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 That's Hawkshaw's doing. While you were talking about that, it popped into my head. I have to imagine... This this stuff these records finding their way when they're no longer used finding their way into old record stores nobody else really wanting these uh, I would imagine early days of hip hop these must have been huge as source music of course and I think but I think that it didn't really start catching on until sample clearance uh, issues in the nineties really started making clearing some of the more well known or uh, like famous or at least recognizable. Uh, funk and jazz breaks made it a lot, like a lot more expensive to uh, especially like underground and uh, indie rap artists. And I think that like the first time I really started to like catch on that some of the stuff that producers were sampling was uh, was more of like a library music style was uh, I think like the two that first come to mind were uh, Mad Lib, who did uh, like on the on that first loot pack record. And LP, who uh, really like to uh, go to a couple of different uh, recognizable sources, at least recognizable in retrospect, uh, for like kind of like late company flow and uh, early solo records. And then by 2005, you had 
like the mouse and the mask where, uh, you know, that danger doom record where danger mouse was like, just really going, going for plundering the whole library music canon of like, you know, DeWolf and KPM and a lot of these other like very recognizable kind of vibe of just being sort of absurd and cartoonish. And I think that kind of springs off the whole, uh, the whole Ren and Stimpy approach of like using this, yeah, this particular sort of like, I wouldn't say generic, but kind of like lighthearted, unserious vibe to, you know, to library music that, that, that had a kind of, kind of vibe to it. Well, I think the thing that I just keep thinking about with this is the fact that it's music largely divorced from context that's meant to have context. It's meant to be attached to a film or it's been meant to be attached to a commercial, but it's very creation. It's not. It's just kind of floating out there for whomever to grab it and then attach it to something, which just seems so odd to me and really kind of fascinating. Yeah, it is. And I think that that sort of idea, the kind of concept might have almost wafted its way towards more you know, mainstream, quote unquote, legit musicians. I remember Eddie Harris, the uh, the jazz saxophonist, actually had a song. Uh, that I believe it was, it was an instrumental. I believe though, like the title is theme, theme in search for a commercial. So you had kind of like this idea of like the session musicians and the musicians like Quincy Jones or Isaac Hayes, who were you know, crossing over into making, you know, soundtracks, uh, sort of pondering the idea of sort of like making different modes of music for different purposes. But in yeah, in the in the context of library music, I, you don't really have so many artists who really transition to that world of uh, writing their own music for their own purposes. For some reason, one weird thing I've noticed is that a lot of these musicians were in various different permutations of the group, The Shadows. Usually, is kind of like anonymous session guys. Brian Bennett. Uh, who was the drummer for them in the 60s. Uh, he became a big name in the library music world. Uh, he's done uh, some tracks that were uh, famously sampled for, like, Nas, I think, uh, was one of the most well-known. Uh, other names, uh, let's see, Keith Mansfield, uh, who recorded the funky fanfare theme that was used in the uh, grimy little Our Feature presentation bumper that you've seen at the beginning of Kill Bill. Uh, there's John Cameron. He had a band called CCS that arranged a version of Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love that became the theme to top of the pops in 1972. And then my, my favorite, my favorite of all of these is Dave Richmond. He didn't have a ton of, uh, ton of, uh, stuff credits wise in the library music, but he played bass with Manfred Mann. He did a session like with Elton John that resulted in your song. He played based on Serge Gainsbourg's Histoire de Melody Nelson, and his most infamous library record is this track called Confunction. It sounds like Deep Purple having a nervous breakdown. And it was like a lot of library music. It was used in uh, in porno. It was in, in this case, it was uh, uh, Radley Metzger's film, The Opening of Misty Beethoven, <laughs> which is a, uh, I, I, won't, I won't name names, but one of my friends, says it considers it the greatest porn with a plot film of all time mark equality oh well you know that's that's some sort of a compliment yes so when, when you first started um 
Because, I mean, you write about music, you research music. When you first started looking into this stuff, how did you feel when there was something where you discovered it was just going into a deeper and deeper and deeper well with all of these just connections spidering out? I mean, was that kind of exciting for you when you realized, oh, hey, there's a lot more here than you'd think of just songs in the back of commercials and films and that sort of thing? Yeah, around the same time I started writing about music is the same time I started discovering all these funny little comps. Like uh, there is like the back to the Cinemaphonic series. There is a second volume of it that came out in uh, uh, 2001 on Motel Records, which is the same label that did the, you know, Bollywood, you know, best of Bombay the hard way and reissued the soundtrack to this Euro sexploitation film, Vampiros Lesbos. So you know, when they can put out this, you know, cinemaphonic volume, which is all British library music, which is generally the most well-known corner of library music, I started to feel like, okay, this is a, this is kind of an untapped, fascinating sort of, yeah, parallel world of pop music. And the funny thing is, at the time, this stuff made me feel kind of inexplicably rebellious because... Well, everyone else in their early 20s was busy trying to be super sincerely, you know, punk rock 20 years too late or whatever. I was listening to this kind of like cheeseball Velveeta funk that was, you know, at best fated to become background music for a porno flick. And I I, I heard this kind of semi-unserious vibe to it that still felt sincere and enjoyable. There's no irony to this. It's just kind of unfiltered and, you know, sometimes it's a little silly. Because concurrently, I was becoming something of an electronic music dork and picking up on all these artists from the whole electronica wave and then going knee deep into adjacent stuff like Boards of Canada and Aphex Twin and Stereo Lab and Broadcast. Kind of like a this wide swath of pop-friendly but still experimental stuff, you know, IDM, psychedelic, what have you. So there's this guy, Luke Vibert. He's this uh, electronic musician I got into in the late 90s. Uh, he's done a lot of great stuff on Ninja Tune, Planet Mew, Reflex, bunch of those labels. And he does everything from kind of tongue-in-cheek, absurdist drum and bass to, you know, really sleek disco throwback house music. Uh, he's got a bunch of pseudonyms, like, you know, Wagon Christ, Carrier District, Plug. He's he's one of those guys who's just got his hands in like eight different things. And he put out, you know, this compilation in 2001 called Nuggets, Luke Vibert's Selection, that was this whole collection of French library music that was mostly late 60s, early 70s. It was heavy on old analog synthesizers and general weirdness. And a lot of it was really kind of silly, but it piqued my interest because it's when it's decades old and hopelessly obscure, it kind of cracks things even wider open than, oh, I like, you know, old jazz fusion records from the 70s or I'm into... Uh, you know, obscure soundtracks, there's like levels deeper than this that actually show, okay, you don't know how how far down the record collector music dork hole really goes. Well, actually, I'm wondering about that too, because I mean, how easy has it been to find this stuff over the years? Because it was probably seen, well, either it was seen as kind of disposable or it's still locked up in whatever closets and storage rooms at various production companies around the world and nobody really probably thought of like oh well, this is something people might actually want to listen to in their leisure when they're not trying to put you know some production together yeah and i mean by the time i started like finding out about this stuff you couldn't really find it in used record stores like i think either because i think there was this overlap period where probably in the 90s if you brought in 
you know, one of these KPM records with a generic green sleeve and, you know, no recognizable names on it, record stores probably just wouldn't even buy it because they, you know, didn't know what it was and neither would most record buyers. And then at some point, you know, when Discogs comes around and people are like, wait a minute, this stuff is getting sampled. This stuff is obscure and weird and it's, you know, showing up on these compilations well, we should, you know, start selling this at a markup. So you you find you find these things, you know, some of the more well-known records can go for at least a few hundred dollars. I mean, the one the one actual honest to goodness vinyl LP I've even been able to buy uh, was off Discogs. It's like this one on DeWolf by a group called Rubba in Motion from 1980, and I bought it because like I really like this track that Madlib sampled uh, for Freddie Gibbs' song Thuggin. And the album cost me a bit over $100. And this was when I still had spend $100 on a single album money, which I which I really don't now. I think accessibility is a big question mark. But I think that the way, well, the way I discovered stuff, and I, I think is probably like the way a lot of people discover uh, stuff that obscure, is you start out with a compilation. You still have... It, it, it is like a really kind of like a total crapshoot if you just go for, uh, you know, looking up a label and seeing what's on it. I mean, you f- might find something thoroughly astounding if you just look up KPM or, you know, DeWolf on Discogs or other labels like Illustration Musicale and Montparnasse 2000 out of France or, you know, Gemelli and CAM out of Italy. But you, you, know, you might find some kind of like psychedelic masterpiece, but you might also find a whole album's worth of schmaltz that won't really do anything for you unless you're filming an extremely chaste romantic montage. Like compilations like the ones I've mentioned on like, like Cinematonic or uh, like there's a good one, uh, a good collection of uh, the DeWolf uh, library called Bite Hard that came out in like the late 90s. Uh, Strut, the label, put out a series called Music for Dance Floors. It's a good cross-section of different labels. Start with those kinds of compilations to pick out the cream of the crop and then if you find like any names which it's funny, they're always attributed to composers. You don't know necessarily, you know, who the band is per se or who the musicians are. But if you like, you know, certain composers, like I mentioned, you know, Brian, Brian Bennett, Keith Mansfield, Alan Hawkshaw, those guys, you'll find, you know, more to like from them. And often you'll find them on, uh, on these albums where it's a whole bunch of other different people playing uh, and composing their own things. So it's, it's 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 a bit of an adventure, but fortunately you don't have to spend you know three hundred bucks. Uh, you can hop on YouTube and you know just do a little uh, do a little uh, recommendation hole, just as so long as you don't you know, stumble across any like right wing antisocial justice warriors talk about library music clips or what have you. Right, you know I know you know that's got to be out there. <laughs> some of those idiots have to be doing that. Some there's got to be some sort of really weird niche they've got something some axe to grind against eh. production music somehow yeah the, the, the algorithm at work you know library music is socialist yeah, i don't know yeah. but i mean most of the stuff you can find online somehow if you have an idea of where to look uh i mean the the heyday of mp3 blogs is long past but i think there are still a few like sites on blogspot like uh the vinyl frontier dusty shelf starving daughter's vinyl impressions that are maybe semi-dormant but still have live links to you know mediafire downloads of zips and if you're not into file sharing and looking up random lists on discogs there is this one message board 
librarymusicthemes.net that hosts hosts a bunch of links to downloads in MP3 and FLAC format. You really do have to know what you're looking for, and you can't just like go go random nutso and you know expect to come up with. Uh, you know, a great lost classic, but it's still a valuable resource. And, you know, the people on there know their shit a lot more than I do even. So, so when, when do you, when do you usually listen to this? Do you like in the background, you're working on things. Do you listen to it? Just, Hey, I just want to sit down and listen to what, when, when do you usually listen to this stuff? That is a good question. I mean, I generally have, you know, my all encompassing uh, music library, uh, hard drive where, I, I don't really have the best sort by genre instincts per se. What I usually just do is like, oh, I like a song, I'll give it five stars, and then I'll create an automatic playlist out of that. And so that'll, you know, generally just, you know, pop up a few things kind of at random, almost unexpectedly, which in a way is sort of how you, you know, generally experience library music in the wild. You don't expect this stuff to come up, and then you, you know, you see a commercial or, well, this is, you know, more more true in olden times, you know, in the 70s and 80s, which I only barely remember. But, you know, to have a, you know, shuffled playlist where I have, you know, you know, some well-known rock and R&B and, you know, you know, pop and hip hop songs. And then all of a sudden something comes up from a mid 70s library record. It's almost like a strange commercial interlude. Well, I was, OK, so that too, when, when that does come up, when you do hear it, I mean, what kind of pops into your head? Do you picture some sort of scene, something like that? Or does it actually kind of do the job it was meant to do where it just evokes this kind of image of some sort of narrative or feeling? Or I mean, all music does that to a certain extent, but this stuff is specifically constructed to be sort of anonymous yet still wants to play on a certain memory or feeling or something like that. And I mean, it can do that as, as effectively as like a, an instrumental jazz song does or an instrumental R&B song or disco. But I think in, in some sense, it really does kind of just by association propel a little something in my mind that kind of like pictures sort of a, a kind of a cinematic sweep or the idea of like a it's it's fairly hard to explain, but it is the kind of music I like to put on. When I have vague notions of trying to like come up with a, a script or a screenplay or just want to zone out and kind of daydream about, oh, well, what if I want to do this project that is a fictional narrative? I'll you know put some of this on. Uh, it's it's but it also still works for for just casual listening. It just takes me a different place than a more well-known pop song would. Talking about this, it almost reminds me, um, a little while back, there was this um, documentary I saw uh, by an old an ex-writer for uh, Letterman who discovered the weird world of those um, industrial musicals. Oh, yeah, the industrial musicals. Yeah, bathtubs over Broadway. Yeah, yeah. And it almost kind of reminds me of that a little bit. It's this weird sort of obscure thing that no one really thought of for years. And then all of a sudden, people just kind of slowly started discovering, oh, there's this whole kind of odd shadow world and music industry here of these things just being produced and pumped out. And they were, they've been all over the, well, I mean, the industrial musicals, not so much, but these things more than that, have just been kind of in the background of everybody's lives without us even knowing it. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of 
it's weird because it's I'm trying to think of like the best way to put it is I mean generally it's mood music per se and oftentimes I'm sure it's used in a way where people don't even really have to think too hard about it. It's like, okay, I want to put in this mood for this particular commercial or this, you know, this clip or this montage, bam, there it is. But then you have to kind of think of like, well, what went into writing this? What went into playing this? Like, does this, is there like an actual soul in this music? And I think that even more than when, what people think about the difference between, you know, indie rock and top 40 pop, this is like the kind of thing that the whole, debate over, you know, rockism and poptimism really likes to, you know, make me think about is like, can you actually have a genuine emotional connection to a song that was basically written to be, you know, a, you know, this modular, this kind of slot in piece of music where, you know, you could use it for, you know, a cop show or a, a car commercial. It's always in service of somebody else's vision it's music that's not meant to stand on its own. So I think when you have a piece of music that does stand on its own, because not every piece of library music is going to become the theme to a, you know, a well-known game show or a sports recap series, or, you know, even a commercial jingle, it's, you know, it might just be there and it, you know, waiting to be used for something. And, you know, sometimes it still is. I mean, like if you've ever seen black dynamite, that that movie, uh, like Adrian Young, the uh, composer, uh, cultivated or curated a whole bunch of different uh, pieces of library music that hadn't really been used for anything before and kind of created a, a de facto, you know, very authentic sounding 70s style soundtrack for this, you know, piratic black exploitation movie. So it can be very it, it can still be very evocative uh, without having to. Uh, draw from a specific memory. Thank you to Nate Patron for stopping by. If you'd like even more of a primer on library music, Nate has a wonderful column over at pitchfork.com, just full of history examples and sound clips. We'll have the link in the post for this episode and over on our Twitter. If you'd like to read more of Nate's writing and research on music, uh, he does it all over the place, Stereo Gum, Bandcamp, Vinyl Factory, you name it, you'll definitely want to follow him in his Twitter at Nate Patron, N-A-T-E-P-A-T-R-I-N. Well, did you like what you heard here today? If so, and you'd like to hear other episodes, it's easy. You can subscribe to the Enthusiasts Club on your favorite podcast app or visit enthusiastsclub.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Enthusiasts Club. Thank you for listening.